You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear. This is the first of a two-part interview with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Sacra. Matt was recently an assistant professor in the Defense and Strategic Studies Department at West Point. Both episodes cover his 2004 deployment as an armor lieutenant in a striker platoon to Mosul, Iraq. This episode focuses on two days in November of that year. In our next episode, Matt talks about the Fab Marez suicide bombing and his later time as an advisor to the Iraqi army. Welcome to The Spear. I'm your host, Tim Heck, coming to you from the Modern War Institute at West Point, where I'm joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Matt Sacra. Before we get into this, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I grew up in Millersville, Maryland, and when I was five years old, I wanted to be a tank. They would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and they said, you mean, you mean like a tank driver? And I said, no, an actual tank. Uh, it made sense to a five-year-old. And ever since then, I was into Boy Scouts. I made it to the rank of Eagle Scout. And I was really big into strategy games and a lot of history. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. For a time, it was dinosaurs and paleontology. But I started to realize I had a big passion for strategy and for military stuff. So I decided when I was 17 to enlist in the reserves and start looking at becoming an officer someday. And what did you do in the reserves? I was a civil affairs specialist. So it was a lot of studying other cultures and looking at how you would go in and kind of set up shop to get smart on that local town, city, or province so that you could educate an entire brigade or something larger that came into the area. So while you were a civil affairs specialist, were you also going to college? It was right before I went to college. It was actually my senior year of high school, and it was in a reserve unit, the 352nd Civil Affairs Command in Riverdale, Maryland. Are you going to college then shortly thereafter? I, I did the very next year. It was supposed to be a, a longer contract, and I was supposed to go to basic training the next summer. But the recruiter put me in for the option where you didn't go split option where you went basic one summer, AIT the next. And so that ended up forcing me to go during my first semester at college. And so my parents pulled the plug. I was still 17 and I had to get an honorable discharge from the reserves to go to ROTC at Old Dominion University in Norfolk. At ODU, what did you study? I studied history. At first, When I first got down there, I was undecided, but I, I realized looking back over my life, I really loved studying war maps and looking at the arrows and people conquering things in World War II and other wars. And so I realized if my passion's for history, I should try to do as much of that in military history as I could. And the Norfolk area is a fantastic place to do it. It is. Did you spend a lot of time at Yorktown? Not a whole lot of time, but I did spend some there during those four years and other years. But we were already pretty big on that area because my mom grew up as a historian and she was very big in the Williamsburg area. So colonial history, Civil War history, we had, we had gotten a lot of it growing up in Maryland and uh, visiting Virginia. It's your senior year, you're commissioning. Do you get to live out your five-year-old fantasy and become a tank? Basically, yes. I, I got armor and it was it was straight out of... ROTC and commissioning, a lot of people said, don't do it. You need to put branch detail military intelligence, but I got armor. I put straight armor and it was something that I'd prayed about and I, I got it. And I was like, yes, I get to be on tanks. So I, that, that was my fantasy fulfilled. I, not becoming a tank, but at least being on one. You've branched armor. Walk us through your pipeline then. So this is all 2001 and it was December timeframe. I kind of admittedly slacked off a little bit and I took another extra semester to graduate. But 
it was December 2001, and I actually chose another semester to stay at the Old Dominion University area in Norfolk to do gold bar recruiting, which is basically where you stay around and you talk to people and say, hey, you should tr come join RTC. And if you choose to sign up for the class, you could even get a scholarship and have the rest of your years paid for and do something productive for the country and the Army. So the summer of 2002, did you go to Fort Knox? I did, yeah. It was at Fort Knox there. The, they used to, it's called Bullock now, but it used to be called the AOBC or Armor Officer Basic Course. And I spent the summer at Fort Knox learning how to, how to tankity tank. And after learning, where did you go? After that, I went, after marrying my wife, we went out to Washington State, and we were stationed at Fort Lewis. Today it's called JBLM, or Joint Base Lewis-McChord. But Fort Lewis, Washington, and I got assigned to a unit that was turning in all of its tanks to get strikers. What did that feel like? It felt kind of like somebody had kicked you in the gut, honestly. <laughs> Here I've trained all this stuff, and I've wanted to be a tank my whole life, and, and, or at least since I was five. And all of a sudden, they're taking all the tanks away. So we actually had nothing for a while. And then we had some German surrogate vehicles we were borrowing that were called the Fuchs and the Lux vehicles. And we would train on those for a bit until we got our strikers. The strikers at this time, though, are just coming into the Army. You have the opportunity to do something new, right? Correct. Yeah. So that was that was a positive. It was, hey, this is the we were actually in the second unit that ever had strikers. There were two units, both at Fort Lewis. One of them had already received theirs and we were getting ready to receive ours. So it was, hey, this is kind of a new opportunity, even though I was kind of a little upset that it wasn't tanks. And by this time, it's early 2003 or so, right? It is. Yeah. Early 2003, start, starting to come up on the summer. And that's when they started issuing them to our unit. Do you have a sense of deployment is coming? We do. There was, there was definitely a sense that it was coming because the unit that first received strikers, they had already begun to deploy. And everybody, you know, the word was out on the streets that we were supposed to replace them. And so when they came back, or even possibly while they were still there, we would start to move over in country to Iraq, and we would start to transition with them. The story you're going to tell us today, is that from that deployment? It is. It's from that deployment and my second platoon leader job uh, that I had in the striker unit. What was the second job? So the first one was being a reconnaissance scout leader on strikers called the RV or the reconnaissance variant, reconnaissance vehicles. My second one was a mobile gun system platoon leader or MGS platoon leader. And the funny thing about that is most people are familiar with the 105 cannons that are on the MGS today, but we did not actually have those because when they fired, the, the, the word has it that they fell over. I don't know if that's true or not, but everybody told us that if that they were very off balance. So we actually had ATGM or anti-tank guided missile strikers. So toes. Toes, correct. And what was that like? Well, it was very frustrating at first because I really wanted to be on a tank and here I was on a striker. And then I really wanted to be on something that shot a really big gun. And instead I got this anti-tank, you know, guided missile or, or, or tow missile. And so the other thing that they told us was these things cannot shoot on the move. For a tow missile, you have to stop and then you have to, you know, it's tube launch, optically tracked, wire guided, as to TOE stands for. So you have to sit there and guide this missile onto the target, which means you cannot be shooting on the move. So it seemed to go against everything I had learned as a tanker to that point. What was the employment strategy or concept for that in a counterinsurgency fight in Iraq? So you have two types of main TOE missiles that they use, the TOE-2 Alpha and TOE-2 Bravo. And the biggest thought was that we would use a lot of TOE-2 Bravos or bunker busters that you're going to have insurgents in a holdout and the 240 and the 50 cal is not going to do it. And sometimes even the Mark 19 isn't going to do it from the infantry. So, hey, let's have a tow missile there that can shoot and bust a hole in something and then we can get the infantrymen in there to do, do their work. You said that was the thought. To me, it doesn't sound like that was what happened. No, originally when the, pre the previous brigade to us deployed, there was a big restriction on using tow missiles in country. They fired them at a range you know, there's different makeshift ranges that people create out in the mountainsides and the countryside in Iraq. But if anybody ever fired anything over a 50 cal at a certain point, they had to do a 15-6 investigation to s explain why they fired some larger weapon system. And a 15-6, for those of us that aren't in the Army, is? So that's basically a commander's inquiry. And the commander says, hey, it doesn't mean you're automatically in trouble, which is what I used to think as a lieutenant. It means that the commander wants to know more information. So he's going to appoint an investigating officer to see, have you done something wrong in firing this bigger weapon system? Because this is a counterinsurgency, and we're trying not to cause collateral damage to civilians or to buildings even. When do you deploy? So we deployed in October 2004. Where did you go on that deployment? 
So originally we arrived at Telafar, Iraq, which is, there's a base just south of it. It was an air base called um, Forward Operating Base Sykes. And you could land directly there on your aircraft. And we arrived and set up shop and we're ready to examine Sinjar and Telafar and that whole region of northeast, or correction, northwest Iraq. And is it your whole brigade? Is it a battalion that's come with you? So that was where our battalion went of 124 Infantry, or Deuce 4 as it's known. And we were only there for about a month because all of a sudden word came down that Mosul was about to get really hot. It was about to be overrun with insurgents, and we were an infantry battalion. So we're going to have to shift out to Mosul instead of Telefar. And you, you had the mobile gun variant version with you? No, we didn't. We, we were still on the anti-tank guided missile at this point. We had, we had tested a couple mobile gun systems out at Yakima Training Center at Fort Lewis before we deployed, but somebody else owned them, and they just kind of let us sit in them and do a couple things. But it still was not ready for worldwide deploy, deployability throughout the Army. What was going through your head when the we're going to Mosul statement came out? Oh, man. Um, the stuff is about to hit the fan, I think, as a lot of people say, or except maybe in harsher terms. I felt like all of a sudden we're going into the lion's den. We were in Telefar, we were on a base that was out of mortar range. It was out of rocket range. And then here we find out in Mosul, guess what their dining facility, or DFAC as it was called, it gets mortared just about every day and sometimes rocketed. And I remember my platoon sergeant saying, oh, I can't wait. I bet the food is delicious. It's to die for. Was the chow any good? It was. It was. It was definitely good. It was really good at both of the dining facilities that we had at Telefar and then after we moved to Mosul. Although there was a, a lingering concern that my commander, Captain Jacobson, had had at the time. And he saw it even when we saw videos of the chow halls or the defects before we deployed. And that was he saw that U.S. soldiers and Iraqi troops were eating together. And I'll never forget his words. He said, man, I don't like this. We're, we're going to keep doing this until one of them brings a bomb into the dining facility someday. And then all of a sudden, we'll tighten up security. And I just remember those words, him saying that before we deployed, and even when we first walked into the chow hall in Fab Sykes in Telefar, and then also in Mosul. When you got into Mosul, how big was the fob you were put on? It was, it was pretty massive. I, I can't say it was much bigger than the one that we came from from Telefar. It just had a lot more packed in close space between units. You had a lot more buildings there. It was right in the city. I'm not in the middle of the city, but it was right on the edge. And so you were, you were in rifle range, basically, from any insurgent in downtown Mosul. And so it, it really felt crammed, like everybody was crammed in this small place waiting to be rocketed, mortared, or even shot. How long were you there before Mosul got hot? I would say about three weeks. It was, it was sometime between mid-October that we moved there, or the end of October, and then all of a sudden, Mosul started getting hot early November. What does your daily life look like as a platoon leader in a city that's heating up? So at first, it, it's a lot of boring missions, and I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the quote of, you know, 100 days of boredom followed by one day of, you know, extreme terror. There was a lot of those 100 days of boredom. You had a lot of driving around the city, and we had what was called counter man pad missions, and the soldiers and I came up with other terms for that because we got so sick of them, but they were important. They were really important missions, and it was to drive around and make sure that nobody was carrying a, a man-portable device that could launch an aircraft because our sister unit that we came to replace was taking off from Mosul Airfield at the FOB right next to ours. So we were on FOB Merez. FOB Diamondback was where the airfield was, or Mosul Airfield. And our job was to patrol anybody that could possibly be in range to launch a rocket into the fuselage of one of our aircraft that was taking the troops home. And so a man pad for our listeners, right? So you've said it's a man portable device. Is this a stinger? They, they didn't have stingers. It was, there, there were a lot of other devices they had that thankfully did not work as well. I recall, I, I don't recall the, all the platforms, but I do recall one instance of them firing this, and, and it was probably 10 or 15 years old Russian equipment, and it lodged into the fuselage of an aircraft and did not explode. And so this had happened. There was precedence for it. And our whole goal was make sure if you see anybody that's on a building with binoculars or arming anything above his shoulder to fire up in the air at helicopters or aircraft, that you engage that person or capture him. And I'm assuming the intelligence that's driving this is coming out of weapons caches. You're finding, you're finding evidence of this, battery packs, 
plots, plans. Definitely, yeah. There, there's that. Plus, like I mentioned, you know, the one that already had launched into a fuselage. We had had a record of that. This had happened at Biop and uh, Baghdad International Airport. And so a lot of people were very concerned. Yes, intelligence finding weapons caches as well. They said, hey, we, we've got to do something about this. So our job, it sounded boring, but it was extremely important to patrol around the area and make sure that we didn't see anybody doing anything like that. And if we did, to stop them. Sorry, let me rephrase that. What does a patrol look like in terms of vehicles, troops, equipment, duration? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, you had three anti-tank guided muscle strikers. And normally, we would go out with those three in the past. But what we started doing with our commander is he said, I want you to take the two mortar carrier vehicles, or the MCV strikers as well. And those are the ones that they were designed to have a mortar tube that launched from the back of the striker. But the technology wasn't there yet. And so they just pulled their mortar tubes out of that vehicle and would have to set them up the old-fashioned way. However, you had about seven or eight mortarmen that would join the 12 troopers that were on my anti-tank anti guided missile strikers with me. And so we would have those five vehicles patrolling out and, and looking for people, driving up and down the streets of nearby villages and, and sub-towns of Mosul. And was this around the clock, or was this only when you had flights scheduled? It was mostly when we had flights scheduled, but they also wanted a presence there prior to flights or after in between to make sure that people weren't moving with these weapons and getting, getting the perfect setup to, to launch next time an aircraft took off. Did you find anything? No, we never did. A couple times we came close to what we thought was something, and it, it turned out to be nothing. Every once in a while you'd hear some shots fired, but we, we never saw anybody actually launching it at any aircraft. And this was about two or three times a day that we would do missions like this. And what's going on in the downtime between those missions? Vehicle maintenance, planning, briefings, and meetings. Of course, soldiers have to have their, their rest and recuperation, so there's obviously sleep at night. There's chapel services in the morning and, and practice for those and Bible studies. There's chow. There's trying to explore the area. There's reconnaissance missions as well where you're looking at things on the map and studying them, talking with the battalion staff to get further intelligence and study areas that might you might be responsible for and sometimes occasionally a reconnaissance mission around Mosul just to be more familiar with the city itself in preparation for a larger assault that you plan that you sensed was coming exactly exactly for that reason the story you're going to focus in on today when does it happen it really happens between October and December, I would say, uh, especially highlighted on November time frame, because that's when the really big assaults started coming. And so there, there are a couple things that happened prior to that that shaped me as a leader, things where I was wrong or, or that I was, I was correct in, but I had powerful lessons learned. And it really shaped how I conducted myself for the rest of the deployment. Yeah, so the first one, this was when we had first gotten there to Mosul. And we were on one of those counterman pad missions that I mentioned. And I, I kind of made a, a stupid decision. And we were driving out, looking around in these streets. And all of a sudden, the lights go out in this little subdivision of Mosul. Now, what we had been briefed on in October, and, and that's when this was. It was late October. They said, hey, when that happens, it's usually the bad guys, the anti-Iraqi forces or AIF or the terrorists, have taken over the power grid. And they're shutting all the lights off so they can ambush you. Well, unbeknownst to me at that time, there are also brownouts, as they call them, where they shut the, the city personnel shut down electricity to save it during the hottest months of the summer and even into the fall. Well, this happened to be a brownout and not a terrorist one, but a, a terrorist shutdown. But I started, I didn't do a, a tight enough map reconnaissance. And we started weaving through some streets. And after the lights went out, my platoon sergeant warned me. He said, hey, remember what we've been told that is? And I said, yeah, but I'm really trying to get through this this road to get to the other side of this subdivision. And I, I made a stupid call and we went down a road that our strikers couldn't fit down. And so we ended up having to back out of this road in with all the power out and it could have been an ambush. Thankfully it wasn't, it was just a brownout. But I didn't know that at the time. So it was, I made things pretty uncomfortable for my platoon sergeant and for myself and for the entire platoon. I'm imagining backing a striker out requires ground guides and it's not a simple process. Correct. Yeah, normally you're going to use ground guides, although I will say that we did not in that situation uh, because th there were a couple city or subdivision buildings that were made of very light rock, and we ended up scraping a lot of that rock off of them getting out there because 
we didn't we didn't believe the risk was worth it to put ground guides out in that situation but there were no children or civilians on the streets so we deemed it safe at the time so the first lesson you've learned is about map reconnaissance it's something that we've covered on the spear multiple times that for whatever reason we as lieutenants just didn't quite do enough of exactly yeah that that was that was a huge part of it and the second thing was listen to the platoon sergeant and don't get fixated on a plan you know, you have you can do a great map reconnaissance, and you can say, yeah, this is the route I want to take. But I think I got really fixated on that as well. And I really should have stopped and, and listened to kind of his, as we call him, spidey senses uh, standing up and, and said, all right, you know what, let's find another way around. But I was so committed to my belief when I looked at the map that I could get through that route to the other side of the subdivision. And it just it didn't work out. So, yeah, better map reconnaissance and definitely be, be willing to listen to your NCOs. And also, don't get fixated on the plan. You've got to go with the situation at hand and not what the plan necessarily states. Had your platoon sergeant deployed before? He hadn't. This was his first deployment, but he had had about 10 to 13 years in the Army at that point, and I had had only about three. And so he was extremely experienced with a lot of training, even though it was his first deployment. And so he was going through a lot of the, the same feelings that I was at the time. You got back from that mission. What was the feeling you had of, ooh, that could have been an ambush? Yeah, that's exactly the feeling. Ooh, that could have been an ambush. And uh, he made sure that I was aware of it. And I, I quickly admitted my mistake and I apologized for it. And I, I know some people don't like apologizing, but I, I recognized that I was wrong and I shouldn't have made that decision. And I said, hey, look, it was a mistake. I, I get it. I, I made a mistake. And he said, well, mistakes cost lives in combat, sir. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I, I was kind of upset with him at the time, but he was right. I mean, I, I should have I should have been a little bit better with that decision-making process in my own head. So I did some self-reflection and some praying, and I, I determined that I would listen a lot more to my NCOs after that. Determining and doing are different things. Were you successful? I was. So the next situation I wanted to share was November 10th and 11th ambushes. And I, I, was, I received a lot of great recommendations from two of my NCOs, my platoon sergeant and my gunner that was on my vehicle. And I decided, you know what, they're right, and I'm going to put this into practice and listen to what they say. So the backstory is November 10th, we had to escort a bunch of Humvees from, they were Navy corpsmen and they were other Army folks that were not combat arms. We had to escort them through the city of Mosul to a link-up point outside of Mosul. And they were pretty nervous, and we took a different route on our way back in after we safely got them to the link-up point. And as we came back into Mosul, everything broke loose. It was crazy. We came into an L-shaped ambush. We started receiving fire from several buildings. I decided to take a different route back, but they had already mined and, and ambushed, prepared that route as well. And so as we turned south, heading down the main route at Route 1 to Fab Marez, we had IEDs going off. We had tripwires that it caused car bombs to explode on people. We were receiving mortar rounds and RPG rockets, and we had just about every two and three story window firing weapons at us, and tires were popping. It was crazy, and it was just a massive ambush, and thankfully we all came out all alive. Our vehicles were pretty damaged, but we were, we were fine. As you dropped the Corman off, you've turned around, you're headed back into the city. Did you pre-plan that you were gonna take a different route, or did that spidey sense kick in? We had pre-planned it. They, they told you never take the same route in and out of a city because they're watching you. And so we said, hey, let's, let's take a, a different route, an alternate one. We also knew that the route that we had taken out was very difficult. It was a crowded street where we had actually bumped a couple civilian cars with our strikers. We didn't kill anybody, but we made a couple civilians pretty angry. And we didn't have time to, to stop and, and let them fill out forms to make a claim against, against our forces to, to be re, uh, compensated for that. And so we said, you know what, let's not go back that route. That was too crammed. Let's take a more open route. And so we had, it, w it was part of the plan to go back that route. How many routes through Mosul are there? Oh, man, I would say there's probably about five to seven main routes that you could take and, and kind of offshoots. And then when you get into a lot of the smaller roads, it, it goes into about 20 or 30. Now, this is all just west Mosul. It's divided by the Tigris River. And on the west and the east side of it, you have about half of a city each. So it's pretty, pretty massive. But if there's only five, ma five main routes, odds are pretty good that the insurgents know where you're going to come. Exactly, yeah. So they had it prepared, and they knew we were going to drive up there at some point. What time of the day does this happen? I want to say this was around 10 in the morning, and we had gone out pretty early to, to make it to the link-up point and get that 
that convoy out where it needed to go. And about 10 or 11 in the morning, we're headed back, and all of a sudden, we turn right or south down Route Route 1, and that's when all of a sudden everything started happening. Where are you in the convoy? I was in the middle. So we had two strikers in front of me and two strikers behind me, and I was the middle striker. What was the reaction by that lead striker when those rounds start coming in? A lot of speed. The lead striker, when when the driver specifically started seeing RPGs being fired and us being shot at, his just subconsciously, his right foot hit the gas a lot more. I mean, he just started speeding up that striker to the point where I think he was going 40 to, to 50 miles an hour and then eventually even faster than that. And his vehicle commander had to tell him to slow down several times and because he just he didn't realize it. he just wanted to get out of the situation. When he accelerated, did the driver behind him, did your driver, did everybody ducks in a row? We did, we did. And it, it's, it's interesting because the whole thing happened so fast and all of a sudden we were, we were going way too fast to actually engage the enemy. We were responding, we were firing our weapons and we were getting shot at and tires were getting punctured. But the, the result of the entire convoy ended up speeding up dr dramatically. When you say firing your weapons, do you mean the tows? No, we didn't fire the tows. We fired our M16s, or our, I'm sorry, our M4s. And a, there were a couple people that still had M16s at that point. And 240 Bravo machine gun. And you also had on the mortar carrier vehicles, they had 50 cal machine guns with what's called the RWS, or remote weapon system. So they were firing that at the buildings on the left and right as well. You're up out of the turret or you're in the vehicle? For those of us that aren't familiar with a striker on patrol. Yeah, I was up out of the turret and I was on the right hand side and I was at the, what they call a cupola or, you know, I, basically like a little turret with some thick glass windows and some metal around it. But exposed from the chest up, of course, you're wearing body armor. And I was firing the 240 machine gun up at those windows until it jammed. When it jammed, what was your reaction? I was pretty frustrated because it had been jamming several times in the last several months, even before we had deployed, and I tried to get a lot of maintenance help for it and never never got it truly fixed. But I, I kept trying to fire it, and finally I, I said, all right, I'm just going to go to my M4. And I picked up my M4 and started using that. How did you balance the difference between aiming down sights, pulling a trigger, and commanding the patrol? Well... I have to honestly admit that I wasn't doing a whole lot of commanding of the patrol at that point because, like I mentioned, we were speeding up so fast, and it seemed like everything in our mind was just lay down suppressive fire, keep the enemy's heads down, and honestly, their heads weren't up anyway. They were Most of them were holding weapons above their heads, and they were shooting their weapons out the window and just praying that it would hit us. And so I, I really was just so focused on my weapon, I became very fixated on it, and I was determined to make the 249 work. But my goal was to fire enough bullets in those windows that they, the enemy wouldn't be reaching their heads out and actually hitting one of us. Was your platoon sergeant then, by default, running the, pl the convoy, or you were all operating on instinct? I would say we were all operating on instinct. We were all firing from our vehicles as if you were in a defensive foxhole that just happened to be moving, and you're trying to, to stop the fire that's coming towards you and get back home safely. You mentioned that there are IEDs going off, there were car bombs going off. How are these impacting your decision-making cycle? That's a great question. So I'm looking at these things exploding, and I'm thinking, oh, we just have to get out of here. And I didn't even realize how fast we were going, but I just knew we need to hurry up and get through this alive. I started to see strikers swerving, and one of the strikers that was in front of me, I can't remember which one, I started to see a tire flopping off of it. Like the tire had been completely blown up by an IED and this thing was running on the wheel itself without the actual inflatable portion of the tire. Your vehicle, did it sustain similar damage? It, it, it had similar damage to the, the hull and the outside, but not, not to the tires, surprisingly. But once I saw that vehicle that was doing that, I thought, okay, it's, it's not going to be able to make it back unless we get back very quickly. So we've got to get out of this ambush. Did you pass that command, or was it, again, folks just kind of like, they all knew they needed to get out? Yeah, I, I didn't pass the command. I, I was not doing a whole lot of command, and I think that's one of the lessons that, that I learned the very next day from my NCOs that, that really changed me throughout the deployment. But it was, it was a lot of just instinct, let's return fire, let's get out of this thing and get back as, as quickly as we can. So I, I, I unfortunately was not making very sound decisions at the moment.
in your deployment workup, and once you're in country, had you practiced battle drills for this sort of eventuality? We had, and typically the, the way that you fight is depending on are you, are you going to assault and look for the enemy? Because if you are, then you have to fight not only through the ambush, but you have to start taking ground against them, you know, occupying buildings and such. Well, we didn't have any infantry with us. We had infantry mortarmen, but we weren't about to start storming into buildings. If you're on a convoy, your whole goal is to return fire, keep the enemy's heads down so that you can get out of there and make it back safely. And so we were sort of doing that instinctively, but I think there could have been a few more decisions that I could have made at the time. You've mentioned that you were in an infantry battalion, but you didn't have infantry 11 Bravos with you. Was that a routine thing? Were you in an armor platoon? Yeah, so because we were the anti-tank guided missile striker platoon or the MGS platoon mobile gun system, we had all tankers. We had the, the, those that are tanker by MOS or military occupational specialty. All of the infantrymen in the infantry battalion were in other infantry platoons, and so they worked on their own. Sometimes they would mix with us in training and in combat, but it was pretty rare. Normally it was us operating as the heavy weapons platoon and the infantry platoons operating with Air Force strikers and all their infantrymen. Did all your soldiers feel the same way that you did about not actually being in tanks? I think most of them did, yes. They, they, they had been training on it from basic, or not, maybe not from basic training, but at least from advanced individual training. And they were really upset about the strikers. So we, we still had, even to this first big engagement on November 10th, we had still some animosity toward the striker, even though it was protecting us. Did that animosity change after November 10th? It did. It, it definitely changed. We, we started to realize that we had a lot more confidence in our equipment because when we got back from that ambush, we were surprised that the strikers had all made it back, despite the, the massive explosions that had occurred. And one of the strikers with its dot tire completely blown off. We also recalled hearing reports around that same time frame of other strikers where all of the wheels had been blown off, or all of the tires, excuse me, had been blown off, and the, the strikers still made it back to the, the base. So we thought that was remarkable. We pulled into the maintenance bay, and within 24 hours, most of the strikers were ready to roll out on another mission. And it sounds like you rolled out on another mission. We did. The very next day, November 11th, Veterans Day, was probably the biggest operation that, that we had ever had to that point, and for, for some of us, ever had the rest of the deployment. And this was, Mosul was officially hot at this point, as, as hinted at earlier. And the brigade and the battalion were planning massive b battalion and brigade level operations to surge out in Mosul with every battalion, every company, every platoon, and to identify enemy strongholds and have the infantry go into buildings and identify headquarters so we could find more intelligence on them and shut down all of their operations. What was your mission on the 11th? So on the 11th, our mission was to go to that same exact spot where we had been ambushed and protect our company's right flank. So if you're driving north through Mosul on Route 1, we were along Route 1, and our job was to stop any fire from getting to the infantry strikers who would have been to our west or our left on that road and make sure that they had protection to, to clear building by building and find the enemy headquarters. And you were sent back to where you were ambushed? We were, the very next day. We went back to the same spot, except this time it was to stop and to, to stay there and to fight and to, to make the enemy be quiet so that our infantry brethren could, could do their jobs. When you got that mission order, what went through your head? I remember thinking, okay, if I'm in something like I had yesterday, I'm going to need to fire a tow missile. It's going to happen. So I asked Captain Jacobson, my commander, and I said, look, I know people have had these 15-6 investigations or these commander's inquiries before for firing tow missiles, but if I face what I did yesterday, I'm going to need to fire a tow missile. And so I discussed options with him, and he said, and, and our, the battalion commander also said, look, I'm, I'm fine with firing those, but we need to be careful about civilian collateral damage. I'm, I'm not as upset about buildings. Those can be rebuilt but lives cannot be re reconstituted, right? And so I kind of, I, I wouldn't say he gave me a blank check, but he told me, hey, use your decision, you know, use your critical thinking and your risk assessment to determine if you need to fire a tow missile. And you're there to set up shop and to make sure the enemy's quiet so we can do our jobs. So I felt a little bit more empowered rather than just let me fight through this ambush the day prior. In the preparation for the mission, what other resources were you allocated? We had 
air support through Apaches, and we also had fixed wing for JDAM or the, the I can't remember what JDAM stands for. I think it's like Joint Direct Attack Munitions or something. But basically, we were going to have fixed wing aircraft that could drop really big bombs on certain points in the city. So you have air support, rotary, fixed wing. Do you have a JTAC with you? Do you have communication directly with the aircraft, or do you have to route it through company and battalion? We had to route it through company and battalion, but those were out there with us. They were out there with the battalion commander, and at one point the battalion commander was right behind my strikers on, on the street. So it, it was we had immediate access to it if we needed it within minutes. What time did you push out on the mission? I can't remember the exact time, but I want to say it was around the same time we had been ambushed the day prior. I want to say it was in the morning, maybe like 10 or 11 in the morning. So the sun is up, it's getting hot, and you know you're going back out there. Could you sense anything change in your soldiers? I could. There was a lot of excitement. I think a lot of us had excitement mixed with some fear or apprehension. Like, hey, this is, it felt really cool the day prior because everybody was okay. We all came back alive. I remember calling my brother back in the States on the phone. He was in the Navy doing very different things from what we were doing. And I remember telling him, wow, like, I feel like a man. We just, you know, fired our weapons and got shot at and we all survived. So it seemed kind of cool at the moment in a very immature way. Whereas now we were thinking, okay, are we going to survive this one? Because we got to experience it yesterday. We know what combat's like now, but how long is it going to last where we all come back in one piece? Did your platoon sergeant have any guidance or wisdom for you? Yeah, so that was the some of the stuff that I had mentioned earlier. His advice to me was to get off the 240 machine gun and to switch places with my gunner. He said, you don't need to be on that weapon system. You need to be command and controlling the platoon and maneuvering the platoon, all five vehicles. He said, and when you're on that 240 machine gun, which is the main weapon that we use, not the tow missile generally, he said, you're, you're too focused. You're too fixated on that. And I said, yeah, yeah, you're right, but I just I feel like I need to be on it. And that was the last time I didn't listen to him. The, the very next day, we, we, changed, we changed positions. But I, he, he was right, and I was too fixated, and I wasn't focused enough on the entire platoon, which was what I, my job was to fight, not fight a single 240 machine gun. So you, you got fixated on that front sight tip, and that was where your head was instead of leading 24, 36 soldiers? Yeah, it was about, it was about 24, and... There were times where I would be able to step away from it in my mind mentally, and I would, I would shift and say, okay, I, I, this is what we need to do as a platoon. But it was just, it, it was too difficult for me. There were too many things going on. I kept having to bend down out of my hatch to switch my radios between the platoon and the company radio network. And because of that, there, there was just a lot that I wasn't focused on. I had my moments where I was, but he was absolutely right. It was, it was too much for me, and I needed to switch positions. Did he wind up backfilling you when you were on that front sight tip? I think at times he did. He, he let off commands over the, the radio, and I was okay with those commands. I mean, I, I trusted him, and it was great. I also sh shared forth commands as well, but it was, very, it, it was very, I guess, sparse. It wasn't as often as it should have been. You mentioned that the previous day vehicles had been banged up. You took them to maintenance. Were they rolling out in near pristine shape or were your vehicles still pretty beat up parts of them were beat up but not the parts that mattered most to get you to where you needed to and protect the soldiers so they were running fine uh, there was a couple cosmetic pieces of damage on them and sandbags that had burst open that we had on the surfaces but overall they, they were doing really well the, the maintenance team that had deployed with us and they were also contracted civilians they had done such an excellent job on the strikers that we were all ready to roll the next day you've pushed out it's 10 o'clock when do you get to the ambush site? It was at about 10 o'clock. We, we rolled out the gate, and it was maybe a, a three or four-minute drive. And one of our mortar folks had kind of cut a hole in an ammunition box that we weren't using anymore. And he had lined it with foam, and he put a little camera device in there so that wherever he moved the weapon system of his 50 cal and the remote weapon system of his mortar carrier striker, it would film. And we actually caught the first port, large portion of this combat on videotape and there's nobody on the street except one man on a bicycle one Iraqi civilian and we still don't know if he was a spotter or if he was just in the wrong place and kind of was oblivious to what was going on but every shop had been closed down just like the day before N none of the civilians were there and just about every building had been lined with insurgents on the second and third stories when you see the shops are closed what happens 
Well, we knew it was going to be on like Donkey Kong, as they say, and we were going to start taking fire, and we sure did. We started receiving fire from every second and third story window, and we started firing back. We're firing our M4s, we're firing our 240 machine guns and our 50 cal, and it's it's a lot of back and forth with not a lot of results. There's concrete chipping off of buildings as we're firing, but again, the enemy is not revealing their heads above the windows, so we don't really think we're actually hitting anyone. Did you have any support from the air at this time? Not yet at this point, and I, I think the battalion commander and the company commander would have been reluctant to use it because it was a lot of small arms from the buildings. They wanted to use it for more important missions of, all right, we, we really can't dislodge these people in this building or this complex. Now we're going to use it. So they saved it wisely, I think, for maybe 30 minutes from then. So this firefight for you, 30 minutes, is it continuous? Is Are there lulls? How does it... How does it play out? It was continuous for about the first 30 minutes. And then we had a short five-minute lull. And then it was continuous again for about another hour. And then finally, you started to have longer lulls. And that was when things started getting quiet, especially once we fired the tow missiles. The first 30 minutes, when that break happens, what's going through your head? I'm thinking somebody's going to get hit in my platoon at some point. And I don't think we're doing enough to the enemy. We're suppressing them. We're making them keep their heads down. Their, their fire is becoming a bit more sporadic. It's not as constant, but there's got to be something that we can do that has a more lasting effect so that one of us doesn't get shot. We had already heard bullets that landed between my, my gunner and I and had hit between us. RPGs had been fired past us. Uh, at one point, a rocket-propelled grenade actually went underneath our striker. It almost hit us, and it went underneath and exploded behind us. And then one landed at the back of my own vehicle and it got stuck between two sandbags and didn't explode. So we were thinking, look, we've, we've got to do something. This has to be stopped. And we, need, we may need to use a tow at this point. Did you call to hire for discussion about that, or the previous conversation with the captain had kind of cleared your mind of the, the authorization? The previous conversation had really cleared my mind that, that this would be okay and we could do this. Once my gunner removed the RPG from the back of our vehicle, and we kept receiving fire from the right-hand side of the road. Uh, particularly, there was one building that was it was three stories tall, and the second and the third story, we just we kept ha- having fire, and no matter how many times we'd shoot back, they kept firing back at us. There was nothing happening. So I said, all right, I sort of think this is a situation that matches what I had briefed my commander on the day prior. I, th- I, think, I, I think we're going to use a tow. Did you have dismounts with you, or it was still your armored... Your armor platoon, basically. Yeah, it was basically our armor platoon and the two mortar carrier vehicles with the mortar men. And so they could have dismounted, but that's not really what they're designed for. They're designed to fire mortars, um, you know, in the nice arc that they fire. So we didn't really have 11 Bravo infantrymen that are designed for kicking indoors. Did we have that training ourselves? Yes, but you don't want to evacuate your heavy weapons to do that. And so the infantrymen were not with us. They were mostly several buildings to our, our left. And what was their mission? Their mission was to clear a whole slew of buildings that were believed to be an enemy headquarters, which it turned out it wasn't. But they cleared block by block, building by building, for hours looking for this enemy headquarters. While that's all going on, you're continuing to receive small arms fire. When did you make the call about that tow? It was after probably three or four exchanges back and forth with this particular uh, three-story building that I mentioned. And I, I, again, I was hearing bullets whiz past myself. My gunner and I actually found a, a spent piece of a bullet between the two of us. It was a little closer to him, so I let him keep it. But w- I said, it's only a matter of time in my mind before, before we actually get killed. One of these bullets is going to hit one of us. So I told my gunner, I said, all right, that's it. We're firing a tow. And we shut our hatches, and I radioed to my wingman, who was the, the lead anti-tank guided missile striker, Commander, I said, I want you to fire a tow into that second, that three-story building that we keep receiving fire from. What was the response? He radioed back and he said, um, you want me to fire a tow? And I said, yes, fire a tow missile into that three-story building to the right that we keep receiving fire from. And he said, uh, okay, firing a tow. And they shut their hatches and they got ready to fire. And he, he told me later after the fight when we got back safely that day, He said, look, sir, I wasn't trying to question your authority. I was just looking out for your career. And I told him I didn't really care about my career at that moment. I cared about getting us all back alive. What's the range on this? 
That's a really interesting question. The range is supposed to be a minimum arming distance of 75 meters. And we were definitely under that minimum arming range. And I was not aware of that at the time. I think there were just so many things going through my head. But it, it still ended up firing and having its effect on the building. After that tow missile shot happens, what's the reaction from the insurgents? They get quiet. They got really quiet. And it, it almost seemed like, of course, we can't read their minds, but it almost seemed like the ones in the, the next story that we hadn't fired one yet were wondering if they should go back over to their windows or if this was going to happen again. So does the volume of fire slackens? The previous day you'd mentioned IEDs, you'd mentioned mortar rounds. Was that also happening, or was it strictly small arms? There were some mortar rounds, but mostly it was small arms and and rocket-propelled grenades. I don't recall any IEDs on that particular day. Did they make the decision to go back to the window and keep engaging? I believe so. When you look at the video, you can hear some, some weapons firing. It's just hard to make out if it's that actual window because the camera really shook at that point. So it's hard to determine, but we, we thought that there were still a couple stray bullets that, that fired. How much longer of a lull do you have before they pick up action? Well, it was really long after that because my wingman determined that he really enjoyed doing that because it made things quiet. And he was, I think he was convinced that there were some people still on the other story that we hadn't fired at. So he radioed back to me and he said, uh, I'm going to fire another one. And I radioed back to him, go right ahead. Did he have considerable cachet with the rest of the platoon after you guys got home? I think he did. He was, he was pretty excited that, that he had done that. And really after that second one, there was a, a pretty big lull. We didn't have any more fire coming from that right-hand side. We did have a few RPGs fired at the traffic circle that was about, I don't know, half a mile north of us. But... He, he, he felt really good about having fired the toes and that I was okay with it. What was the culminating point of that ambush? I want to say it was actually the tow missiles because at that point, it got really quiet. There was still some sporadic fire, but that's when we started having those 15 to 20 minute lulls. And we realized, okay, the fight is mostly over. We could still get killed. And there's still maybe some targets of opportunity here. We were still occasionally receiving fire from that traffic circle I mentioned a a half a mile north of us. And we also, one of our folks in my platoon saw at a distance several trucks with people armed with weapons at that traffic circle, but I did not give him permission to fire at them because it was a little difficult to tell. He said, "I, I think what these are is a whole bunch of trucks going back and forth with weapons. And I wasn't confident enough to fire on that because there may have been civilians up that way. When the firefight culminates, does company tell you who were pulling back, or did you radio to them and say, hey, we're done here? It was kind of a combination of both. So because of that RPG that we had in the back of our vehicle, we, we were looking for EOD to come out and get us. But like I said, my platoon, or my gunner, NCO, he, he took care of it. And so that wasn't an issue anymore. So I, I, I kind of kept reporting, hey, there's, there's not a lot of activity going on. We may want to push further north toward that traffic circle because we... We had not only received RPGs, but we also fired a couple tow missiles at that as well. Uh, same same vehicle, same same wingman. And so based on that, we thought, all right, we probably need to get out of this area. That We're, we're sitting ducks, and we're probably going to get mortars or rockets coming at us soon. Well, company had really already determined that at the same time that there were no enemy headquarters in the buildings they were clearing. And so they had established a foothold. It was probably time to move on and end and the mission. We had been out there for about two or three hours. When the mission end comes down, what's going through your head? I'm thinking, what's the best route out of here? We know that it's not good to go back the route you came, but at the same time, we have no idea what's ahead of us in the rest of the city. And so we're a bit apprehensive about going backwards, but also apprehensive of going forwards and taking another route, the long route, all the way back to our base. What decision did you make? Well, it was a company decision, so I, I didn't have to make it. The company commander decided that we were all going to merge together as a company on the road that I was on, and we were all heading north, and we would cross the bridge over the river, and we would head into East Mosul, and we would come all the way through that sector that other battalions had secured, and we would get back safely to, we would cross another bridge back to our side of the river and finally get back to our base. Did you think that was a wise decision? I didn't. It seemed like a really long way to go when we could have just driven about a half a mile to a mile south and been back at our base. 
but I was also mixed with feelings about, well, you don't want to go back the same route. So I felt like, okay, let's just do this. Did anything significant happen on that trip home or was it? It did. A lot, a lot significant happened up until we got to the bridge and we got over to East Mosul and the other battalion sector. What, what happened is as soon as we got up to that traffic circle and we turned right or heading east, all of a sudden, it was like the 10th or the beginning of the ambush on the 11th again. We started having mortars, RPGs, rockets. We actually had some IEDs at that point that were exploding on that route. And we heard gunfire from several mosques and several buildings as we drove toward the river. Was the command to stop and fight or to keep drove? It was to keep going that we, we needed to get back. And so a lot of people returned fire. A lot of people just kept driving. And several times mortars landed uh, over top of my or another person's vehicle, where if we had been going just a few miles an hour faster, or if the person in front of us had been going a few miles an hour slower, the mortar would have landed right on top of the vehicle. Were you still in the 240 at this point? I was. This was, this was the last day of me being on the 240 before I finally listened to my platoon sergeant and my other NCO. Where in the company train are you? I want to say we were at the rear. I think all the other platoons had already migrated north, and we were the rear because we were already on the road. So our job was to secure them while they all got to the road. They would line up, they would start moving, and then we had been established the longest, so we were comfortable with being at the, at the back. As you're driving towards the river, were you the first one engaged from the rear, or did you know it was coming? I think I knew it was coming because it seemed so simultaneous. It all seemed to be happening at once. And like I said, I, I can't guarantee for sure there were rockets, but we at least had rocket propelled grenades uh, that were exploding ne next to us. And so with all of it happening at once, it seemed like, okay, there's going to be more of this. And, and I thought it was going to be the rest of the way back. But once we got to the bridge, it, it ceased. And especially once we crossed the bridge, we got over to the other battalion sector. It was a lot more quiet over there. Any significant damage to your vehicles? None that I can recall. I, I, surprisingly, there, there was not as much as we had had the day prior. And what about to your soldiers? Thankfully, everybody was fine. Not a scratch on anyone. You've pushed through the other battalion sector. You've gone back to the FOB. What's your post-combat routine? Well, we get back. We kind of share war stories, as, as many people do. Uh, we talk about how many we thought we had engaged of the enemy and I had to collect those reports from my soldiers and of course they're always exaggerated right it's not because anybody's trying to lie but if two people are shooting at the same target both of them are going to count that as one hit and so trying to make sense of those numbers to report up to the intelligence folks in the battalion and also kind of debrief and ask people what they saw to make sure that you get a more broad perspective than your own your own kind of narrow field of view. Did your platoon sergeant pull you aside again at this point? He did and he mentioned it, and I said, okay, you know what, you're right, we're, we're going to do that tomorrow. And I, I switched with my gunner the next day. World of difference. It was night and day. I was, easy, I was able to con command and control the platoon with confidence. I didn't have to worry about maneuvering the vehicle or the 240 machine gun. And I, I just thought to myself, why didn't I do this the first time that he suggested it? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.